This episode is sponsored by NewCalm, and as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain, whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap, a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also downregulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download Nucalm, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. And you can find even more information on Nucalm.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show CEO and co-founder of iAssist Technologies, Barry Bruder. So in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from Barry's early life, his journey into the world of neuroscience, the incredible efficacy they are finding with microcurrent neurofeedback, the benefits on PTSD, autism, and other brain injuries. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Barry Bruder. Enjoy. Barry, I want to start by saying firstly thank you to Dr. Rennie Edelson, who's been on the show a long time ago, my chiropractor, for connecting us. And secondly, I want to welcome you to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you. Honored to be here and uh, honored to be able to share with your audience and uh, a little bit of how uh, how I came to this uh, crazy world of neurofeedback uh, and how in the world uh, uh, a kid from Buffalo uh, who wound up uh, down at the University of Florida, uh, back up to New York and out to California, how in the world uh, I came to develop uh, 
uh, ISS technologies and the research behind it and whatever it is, I will look to you for uh, for your sort of steering and guidance because um, I'm one of those individuals that is at times so impassioned about this whole arena uh, that I'm kind of like a wind-up toy and I could just keep talking for about 17 hours uh, but I want to be able to be as specific to uh, to your uh, questions and um, uh, and and kind of start off in that way. Beautiful. Well, I know that you're in LA now, but let's go back to Buffalo. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. I was born in November 58. Yep, that makes me 64. Uh, in uh, Buffalo, uh, and lived in a little town called Tonawanda, uh, and um, moved to Williamsville. I have one brother who is, <coughs> excuse me, he is three and a half years younger, Hugh, uh, no sisters. Uh, and uh, mom was a uh, stay at home. Uh, and back in the 60s, uh, many, as most moms, I think, were. Uh, there were working women, but my mom was definitely a stay-at-home caregiver uh, and uh, did her best to rein in two brothers beating the heck out of each other constantly, uh, you, know, uh, you know, playing football and loving to tackle my brother and putting him on the other team, uh, which made him into a real tough guy of a little firefighter uh, later in his life. So uh, I, I guess I was prepping my brother, uh, Hugh, uh, who is the uh, chief at Boynton Beach uh, Fire Department uh, in Florida. Uh, and uh, dad uh, worked a lot. He was out in the world. He was uh, uh, selling furniture and uh Man, that guy could sell ice to Eskimos. People would walk in and, you know, before they knew it, they were, you know, buying a bedroom set. Uh, and um, and dad worked for uh, uh, several different furniture companies in Buffalo. But, you know, he was just one of those super hardworking guys. And though he was offered many opportunities of people that believed in him to go into his own business, he, you know, he just he was very happy just to go along working for the man and, you know, going home. So I, I, I didn't see a whole lot of dad because he worked a lot of hours and most of the time was spent at home being the big brother, looking out for my brother. Uh, and the dynamic really was because mom uh, had a lot of uh, issues. Uh, uh, I, I would say, you know, she had a lot of anxiety uh, and I think a lot of depression, uh, uh, especially related to not being near her family and uh, seeing uh, uh, sisters die of breast cancer. There's a gene called the BRCA gene, uh, which is um, very dominant in uh, uh, the Ashkenazi uh, Jewish heritage. And mo most all of the women uh, had that gene. And they all died, and uh, she lost uh, she lost two sisters early, a third sister later, uh, and even she herself had cancer. And uh, you know, and as it's turned out, of course, you know, I I unfortunately carry this gene, the Brock BRCA BRCA gene, uh, and uh, you know, and it's been it's been a really really 
major uh, played a major role, I think, in in a lot of her sadness and depression and loss. And as a, as a, as a young boy, uh, observing the anxiousness, the depression in my mom, and of course seeing her at times curled up in a ball and. As a child, you know, we're, we need the parent to take care of us. But unfortunately, uh, I was very clear that at many times I actually was in a position where I had to take care of my mom. Uh, and um, I remember being five uh, and having people say, which they do to little kids, well, what do you want to be when you grow up, uh, Bear? Uh, and I remember saying, well, I want to be a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Well, that's a, that's an awful big uh, uh, sort of uh, path you've laid out for yourself there. Uh, 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 well, how, how did you know you want to do that? And I remember saying, well, I have to take care of my mommy because my mommy doesn't feel good. Uh, and, you know, and having people look at me and not really understanding at the time why they were looking at me the way they were looking at me and realizing that that was kind of a heavy thing for a little kid to be thinking. Uh, but, you know, children believe that if the parent perishes or they die, well, who's going to be there to take care of them? I barely see my dad. Uh, what if mom's not there? Who's going to take care of me and my little brother? So I really, I really assume the role of caretaker for my brother my younger brother, because the overwhelming majority of the time, mom was in a depressed state and dad was off working. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I, I really had to take care of the house. And so I think early on, I felt very comfortable in the role of caretaker, uh, caregiver, caretaker, whichever. And, um, and I grew up feeling like I was here to be in service and to take care of people. And through my entire life, people have come to me telling me things, you know, people who were, you know, when I was five, that, you know, I, I remember being five years old at, at camp and this 16-year-old girl, you know, probably like took me on as her little, her little pet uh pet little little kid uh and i remember she was telling me all about her problems I, my whole life people have told me everything that you can imagine I, I, I just thought it was a totally natural thing that as a little boy and as a teenager people who were 20 30 40 50 years old told me all their issues and i sat there listening and offering feedback um uh, i guess i've been doing that as long as i lived uh and so it wasn't a big surprise that when I, you know, did grow up, that I would move in the direction uh, that I did, and you know, later become, uh, you know, a a chaplain uh, in in March of '88 uh, when I actually moved to uh, California, uh, and and in fact, uh, though you know, you mentioned that I, uh, I I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, Laura, my wife, and our two, at the time, little girls, uh, uh, 
Ruby and Skylar, Ruby now 24, Skylar 19. Um, uh, Ruby's off in Japan teaching English to elementary and middle school kids. Uh, and Skylar just started her sophomore year and she's in Birmingham, England. Um, but at the time, we actually, you know, decided let's get the heck out of LA. And we moved to Temecula, uh, California. And uh, we've been there since, uh, uh, gosh, uh, I think we've been there since about. 16 2016 uh and we really like it it's you know about an hour north of san diego kind of wine country super pretty area uh but the the evolution and the challenges that i faced with a very military father who was you know basically you know you you didn't swear there was no cussing going on we didn't even have soda in our house. There was no alcohol in our house. If there was, it was locked in a bar for my, someone that my father would entertain uh, uh, from time to time. He never drank alcohol. There was no alcohol. There Again, there, there was no Coca-Cola or, you know, in Buffalo, they call it pop. We didn't have pop in the house. There was no pop. You know, so I remember going to camp and going, oh, my gosh, Orange Crush. This is the best thing in the universe. And I was pretty excited about Orange Crush, let me tell you. And uh, but I mean, that's just the, you know, my older daughter says, Dad, you're so wholesome. Well, I don't know what that means, but, you know. I guess I grew up with no cussing going on in the house. So I have a wife. We're driving down the road. And she's, you know, she's like cussing out the driver that cuts her off. And I'm like, Laura, you do you have to use that language? I'm just an old fashioned kind of guy, I guess. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just the way it is. But, you know, it was a very militaristic house where my dad, who was army, you know, was like, get your fingers off the walls. I mean, it was a very, I mean, I had to make the bed. It had to be just so. So I'm, you know, I'm kind of relatively OCD because of a military father. And so it, I guess it makes sense that I would found nonprofits like the safe place for pediatric AIDS, clear path, uh, addiction care, uh, you know, and later found, uh, ISS technologies, uh, I just have a very specific way of doing things. And I think that the structure that I have lived with in my life, even though I didn't go into the military, I feel like I was in the military when I was at home in boot camp most of the time. Uh, and and that's kind of what it was like growing up uh, being very brutal. You said that your mom felt um, depressed because she wasn't close to her family. Were they in different parts of the U.S. or were they overseas? Yeah, so my mom, when my dad was in Korea, my mom learned from uh, her brother, David, about this guy, Ron Bruder, and they wound up meeting each other and, uh, you know, being on again, off again, because my dad was from Buffalo. I'm from Buffalo. And I grew up in Buffalo. Uh, and her family was all in Monticello, New York, uh, you know, in, in what was called the Borscht Belt and all the, you know, Concord Hotel uh, and all those, you know, uh, like, uh, 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 you know, the, the, the big ho hotel and summer 
area that was really big during the 50s and uh, and 60s, where all the people from the city would go there during the summer. Uh, and um, uh, and so they were mostly all on Long Island and New York City and in that area. And my mom was kind of all isolated and alone in Buffalo. So she really missed all of those people. And between being alone at home with two little kids <clears throat> and not being near uh, her, you know, her, her, her siblings, I, I think it made for a very lonely life. She did have some friends uh, like, you know, I called her my aunt, Renee, who recently passed, Renee Burzon, I spent an awful lot of time over there because Renee was a really good cook. And my mom tended to boil hot dogs and make TV dinners, which, you know, were not that appealing. I love my mom, but she was not. A, not she did make a mean spaghetti sauce, I will say. So that was the highlight. You know, once a week we would have the sauce and the, you know, all the Italian food, uh, which was, you know, which was really nice. So, um, you know, she was really, I think, lonely, really sad. And that's what I guess, you know, there's a silver lining. And the silver lining is that's what really made me who I think I am today out of necessity. I wound up really taking care of Sydney Bruder. She was uh, her name was Sydney. And now, of course, all these you know, all these girls are named Sydney. Well, she was a Sydney at a time when there was no such thing as girls named Sydney Bruder or Sydney. Uh, and uh, but that's what it was like. And I think that that was what the earliest uh, uh, memories that I have were uh, of taking care of her and having all my life from kids coming up to me that had problems at home with their families. Somehow the wayward kids always wound up coming to my home and I wound up taking them in and taking care of them, literally even hiding them out when they had funky stuff going on with their families, uh, you know, where, you know, they had an alcoholic father uh, and, you know, they needed to escape because they were being beat up. Uh, you know, I was hiding them out and, you know, and and making a little tent in my bedroom and giving them a place where they could, you know, hang out and stay and, you know, and feeding them, hiding, you know, like sneaking food from the fridge and taking care of. I remember numerous kids like that growing up, uh, come to think of it, that I kind of uh, hid out and, you know, kind of, I guess that was my first nonprofit. Well, you talked about wanting to be in the psychology world when you were five. By the time you got to high school age, what were your career aspirations and how did that bring you to Florida? So I uh, I wound up uh, kind of really giving it a lot of thought. And, you know, initially, uh, because I have the uh, uh, ability to sing, I've been a singer since the, the earliest age uh, and did a tremendous amount of music theater. And when I was in New York, I did some work uh, in, in the entertainment industry. But from early on, I thought this is just not something that I want to dedicate my entire life to. I, I felt called to do something more. And I wasn't sure exactly how to do that. I still kept thinking that I need to uh, move in the direction of becoming a, 
at least a psychologist, and I took a tremendous amount of psychology courses and 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 invested lots of money and time and energy into reading a massive amount of psychology and self-help, uh, you know, everything at, you know, at the time, you know, from looking at uh, all of the, uh, you know, the earliest, you know, uh, teachers in, in that field, uh, you know, all the way through Tony Robbins and uh, anything that I could find that I could get my hands on, I studied. Uh, and pretty much on my own. Uh, and then I wound up uh, in the School of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida, finished uh, with a degree in, uh, in from that school uh, and uh, and with, with a minor in psychology. I did post-baccalaureate uh, in, in the University of Florida in that direction as well. But then I realized it it still wasn't uh it wasn't enough for me. Uh I moved to New York after the University of Florida uh and I needed to, you know, earn a living, so I wound up becoming uh a uh, uh a you know, one of the managers in uh you know, there there were many event companies uh and uh and to to earn a buck uh, I wound up going to work for uh, a few of these different companies, uh, Restaurant Associates being one of them, and they sent me to Windows on the World uh, in one of the trade towers that is now down, uh, and I became a sommelier. And I mean, things that I really had absolutely no interest in doing at all. But here I am like a sommelier, not giving a hoot about wine, and, uh, you know, and, you know, what did I do? I, I wound up leaving New York, uh, uh, actually with my first wife, <clears throat> who I met at the University of Florida, uh, and uh, became an event planner in Los Angeles and um, wound up doing events. It was called Out of This World Event Planning, and I became quite successful with it, doing events for the city of Los Angeles uh, and, you know, being involved with the Academy Awards and, you know, and I'm going, wait a second, this, this is not who I am. I do not want to do this. And I remember turning to Joy, my first wife, and I said, I'm, I'm miserable. I, I did not ask for this. I did it to make, you know, ends meet. Uh, and I, I left that whole world in the fall of 90 when Desert Storm happened and Warner Brothers, who was one of the companies that I had an event scheduled for, canceled. And it was the first time in 50 years that Warner Brothers canceled their uh, their Christmas event. Uh, and I went to the Institute of Psychostructural Balancing to get a uh, kind of a physical therapy type certification uh and uh and i i decided that was really the direction that i needed to go i wanted to be able to do more body uh focused and centered healing work uh and right around that same time i went to uh in, into a a pastoral healing program uh uh in glendale uh, California, 
uh, and the uh, the uh, the minister said, you know, everybody that's in this program, uh, you know, will you know will be ordained, and I, I didn't really care one way or the other about that. I just wanted to help people, but uh, she said, in order to be legal and you know and and good with doing spiritual counsel, which was for me a natural thing to do, that was a pivot point. Rather than go in the direction of becoming a psychologist, in becoming a, you know a, a minister, a chaplain through this through this uh, program, uh, uh, it was called the Healing Light Center. Uh, and I went into this program with Rosalind Briere, who was the the minister, and she was the you know the the head of the program. Uh, and it wasn't long after that that I wound up becoming ordained and really moving more in that direction. That was in March of 1988, and it was in that timing that, as we know. HIV AIDS became a thing. It was it was it was proliferating uh, through the world, uh, and a lot of people were dying. Uh, and by 1991, when I went to the Institute of Psychostructural Balancing, and then wound up moving more in that direct direction. By 1992, I was a counselor at a camp called Dream Street, which was a camp for chronically and critically and terminally ill children. And uh, I remember being placed with these two little boys, and I was their counselor. Uh, it was a a lot of counselors to a very small number of of kiddos at this terminally ill uh, uh, camp for for these uh, these children, and there was a moment that I'd like to share, and this this was the moment that was so pivotal for me, and it was the first moment, James, that I I realized that I needed to do something so incredibly different from anything that I had imagined my life to be. And it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was sitting in the game room, you know, with a bunch of computer games, Pac-Man, whatever they had at the time, all these kids were running around playing with the games and as I was sitting there on the ground, a very large little girl sat on my, my knees. And you know how when you have your legs crossed over and someone might sit on your knee, well, it kind of kind of hurt the knee that she sat on. Uh, and, um, uh, and I didn't say anything because, uh, well, she just kept sitting there. And then a pile of kids jumped on. And... Um, well, okay, now forward to we're going into our little cabin and the boys had the room over there and I was in the room over here and uh, and I was rubbing my knee and these two little boys looked at me, uh, Michael and Tyler. I will never forget these boys. And they said, hey, what's wrong, Bear? What's wrong with your knee? 
And I said, no, no, it's, it's fine. It's fine. It's just a little, a little tender. It's okay. Don't worry about it. You guys just get ready now. We got to go to med call and dinner. So you guys go get ready. And I'm rubbing the knee. And I hear the boys in the bathroom. And they're saying, please, God, please, Jesus, please help Barry with his knee. We don't want him to hurt. We don't want him to be in pain. Please help him. Thank you, God. Thanks for helping Barry because we love him and he's a great counselor. And I'm hearing this and I am, I am, I am, I'm over here crying, listening to these boys praying for my knee. And, uh, and, and, and it definitely brought a little tear to my eye. So we're getting ready to go to med call and dinner. And I said, boys, we got to go. It's time. We got to leave now. And uh, we're at the door. And Tyler says to Michael, you tell him. I'm not going to tell him. You tell him. And I said, boys, somebody better tell me we got to go. So say it fast. What 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 is it that you got to tell me? And these boys looked up at me. And in unison, they said, well, Bear. Do you think that sometime you can pray for us? And I, I held my heart and I looked at these boys looking up at me with these puppy dog eyes. And I said, yes, boys, I think I can do that. Now let's go. Well, James, I walked out of that room and I was a changed man. I, I was no longer the person that I had been. I remember that night when we had the gathering of all counselors. One counselor was bickering at another counselor over something that was so menial. And I said, excuse me, I know that y'all don't know me and I know that I don't have any right to interject this, but I have to say that what you two are bickering about right now seems so incredibly inconsequential to the reason that we are here to bring joy to the lives of these children. And I would like to urge and invite you all to think about that and take your bickering somewhere else. I'm sorry. Well, you could hear a pin drop. And these people were like, man, who the heck is this guy? Where did he come from? And these two people felt so stupid for bringing this up and not being aware of the fact that we had a privilege to help these children. And when I left that camp, James, I kept having a nightmare. I'll never forget this nightmare because I would wake up re really emotional from this nightmare. And it was two little boys. And it was like I was watching a screen, like a play in my mind, a, a screen play. And the two little boys were playing. And the mother of one little boy would be sitting there 
in her little beach chair. And from off screen, in would run the mother of the second child and rip her child away and say to the other mother, get your child away from my child. You're, you're a murderer and your child's a murderer. And I would wake up from that dream. At, at least a dozen times I had that dream. And I, I remembered waking up perhaps the 10th time from that dream in, in, in a sweat and crying and saying, God, what do you want from me? I can't go on like this. What, what is going on? Tell me, what do you want me to do? I can't go on like this. And, uh, and I remember hearing in my head, these these children deserve a safe place. And uh, I guess I was thinking about sorry, being a kid uh, and going through what I went through. And, you know, feeling like there was really no one to keep me safe. And these kids, they didn't have anybody to keep them safe in many cases. And I had a vision of a place where children could run free and have fun frolic have a great time no big surprise that i learned that a lot of these children when parents who had hiv aids would take them to a lot of these preschools and the preschools would say, oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, we'd love to have, we'd love to have your kids. Absolutely. So tell us a little more. About, oh, and by the way, uh, Johnny uh, has uh, HIV, but, but, but he's fine. He's fine. Oh, okay. Well, tell you what, we've got all the information we need. We'll get back to you as soon as we have an opening. But, but you told me you had an opening. Well, we, it's coming up. And we'll get back to you. We'll let you know. And I realized ostracism was rampant. And that these schools, preschools, were, were not allowing these children to get in. And I thought, well, for goodness sake, this is just criminal. This is not right. So I went to... Children's Hospital, and I spoke with Dr. Joe Church. It was 1992, and I remembered sitting down with Dr. Church, who was the head of allergy and infectious disease at Children's Hospital in Los Angeles on Sunset Boulevard, and I said, Dr. Church, this is a terrible thing. There's ostracism going on all over the place here in Los Angeles, and I can't accept that, and I need your help. I want you to go with me to these schools, and I want you to tell people what you've told me, that the viral load is too small, and these children should be able to get into these preschools. 
And he said, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And we went to St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Hollywood, California, and Pastor James Boleyn looked at us and said, we will have your children. We will accept your children. And they were the first courageous ones. God bless you, Jim Boleyn, who is a friend to this day. And I'll tell you what, six other locations, they took in our children. And the safe place for pediatric AIDS mission was fulfilled. And that went on a good number of years. It went on actually till about 2003 when ostracism really wasn't a big deal anymore because it, people knew that the viral load was too small for a kid to pass it on to another kid. Shortly after I founded the Safe Place for Pediatric AIDS, in that same year, by the end of that year, I was at an event that was a conference called a Whole Life Expo. It was a kind of a new agey, self-help, uh, uh, psychology and metaphysics and whatever type event, Whole Life Expo. And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was there. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was like a Gandhi. She interviewed more than 20,000 people that were clinically dead and came back to life, writing about them going down the tunnel to the light, not being ready to die, coming back and telling all about their stories. She was the first in this world to really be known for her work. And the book was called Death and Dying. Elizabeth with an S, Elizabeth Kubler hyphen Ross. And I walked up to her. I bought her book, Life After Death. And I said, well, hi, Dr. Ross. Uh, my name is Barry Bruder. And I, uh, I, I founded this organization called the Safe Place for Pediatric AIDS because of ostracism. And, and she looks at me over her little bifocals and she says, you're coming to Virginia. And I said, I'm what? <laughs> yeah, you're coming. Don't ask. I, I was like, who is this kook? And she calls this woman over and she whispers something in the woman's ear. And this is all like in 60 seconds. And the woman goes, Dr. Ross has invited you to come train with her in her emotional release process in Headwaters, Virginia. And I was like, what? What the heck are you talking about? And um, I didn't know what she was talking about, but I thought, well, hey, gosh, any opportunity to go train with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I'll take that as a message from the Lord that that I need to go there. And uh, and there I was in Headwaters, Virginia, flying back and forth over almost three-year period training under Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and her emotional release process in a five-day series of many of these life-death transition LDT workshop, experiential workshop, abreaction, emotional release workshop trainings. And I remembered some of these MDs and very fancy people with all these letters after their name saying, who do you think you are with Elizabeth, you know, nuzzling up to her? And I said, well, actually, I don't think I'm anybody. I, I, I'm just a guy. I'm not trying to do anything. 
I just like Elizabeth. And well, apparently she likes me because she likes me to go cook with her. And we'd be in there and she'd say, you know, hey, time to go cooking. And I'd cook with her every time that, that we, you know, we just, we just got along real well. And, um, and I'll, I'll mention the highlight moment. And if, and if, and if some of y'all do not know who Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was, the stages of grieving from denial through acceptance, they come from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She has impacted more mental health providers to understand the stages of grieving than anybody else. She is the person who was the initial trauma therapist, MD psychiatrist. And I said, Elizabeth, this will be my last time that I'll be coming here, potentially for a very long time. May I have the privilege of interviewing you? And she said, okay, make it, make it snappy. And I said, okay, we'll, we'll make it snappy. And I'm sitting down on the veranda outside of her house. It's a beautiful, sunny day with these cotton clouds flying by. And over on the side is the pen and the corral where all her llamas and goats were kept. And uh, I'm interviewing Elizabeth Kubler-Ross with this teeny tiny little recorder and this teeny tiny little recording tapes that God knows where that, that little thing is now. And, uh, and I'm interviewing her, asking her all these questions that I thought were real intelligent questions, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, or not. And we got to the end because she goes, you Okay, we got all right. We got we have to go make lunch. And I said, okay, one one last question. Elizabeth, if there was one thing that you wanted me to tell the world, you're Elizabeth Cooler Ross. What would that be? And she put her head in her hand and she went, Ugh, I'm tired. I need you to take your great work into the world. And then she looked over and she saw the llamas and goats getting out. And she said, hey, my llamas and goats are getting out of the pen. Go get those llamas and goats back in. And I said, me? She goes, yeah, you, you go get those llamas and goats. Go get those back into the pen. And I'm running around and I'm chasing Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's llamas and goats. And I'm getting them back in the pen, afraid they're going to kick me. And I, and I went, what did she say? What does she mean by that? What does she mean she wants me to take my great work into the world? And I went, oh, my gosh, I have no idea what she meant. Two years later, one day, I went, she wants me to take my great work into the world. And I, like, remembered having this moment of epiphany. And I went, did Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, did she hand me a baton? Am I supposed to continue this work going forward? It was around that time that I founded Clear Path Workshops. And for a decade, we did the same kind of workshop, experiential, emotional release that people came to from all over the world. And we did them in Virginia, Maine, Michigan, and Malibu, California. And it wasn't until... <coughs> excuse me, my, uh, our, our younger daughter was three. And my wife said, bear, you're working too much. You're traveling too much. You got to be here for your kids. 
you got to enjoy them while they're young. And I, I stopped doing clear path workshops and turned it into clear path addiction care years later, but I never closed it down. And that nonprofit serves uh, military first responders and every penny that is fundraised that comes in. And I don't even seek fundraising. People come to me knowing about it. Every penny goes directly to care. Nobody makes a penny. I don't make a penny. Nobody makes a cent. It goes directly and not just for ISS, not for neurofeedback. We've helped a husband and a wife and their doggy get out of the car that were living in their car downtown LA. We've helped with funerals. We've helped with food. We've helped with housing, whatever it is. It isn't, it isn't uh, uh, welfare. It's a stopgap helping to pay it forward and help people with, with a step up, a hand up to help them to care for themselves. And that's what Clear Path Addiction Care is about. Uh, and um, as resources come in and we find out, and, and I don't really advertise about it because we'd be overwhelmed. And uh, my focus has been so much on helping people day to day, uh, families that come to me. Uh, and, you know, I really work with the most ill population that still come to me uh, as I also run ISS Technologies. Uh, but it was those those days, James, with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and that training uh, and clear path uh, workshops uh, that really became the foundation of my teaching, my training and educating people uh, from throughout the world. So it made complete sense when I was guided later uh, in, uh, you know, really, you know, 2009, 2010 uh, into the, the field of neurofeedback that it made complete sense uh, that, uh, that I would move in that direction. But of course, not knowing how in the world I would do it, but always trusting that, you know, that God will lead the way. Uh, and I don't need to know. I just need to put one foot in front of the other and the path will be illuminated. And that's that's how I always felt about clear path. We just need to help each other. We are here to hold a lantern with one hand and hold the hand of that individual uh, needing our help with the other. And that we are limitless as long as we have faith and belief in ourselves, uh, and uh, and and that's where uh, I also found that ISS could be so helpful because it literally is a technology that palpably changes things in the body that brings hope. I don't mean to jump too far forward and get into to ISS, but this is. I wanted to make sure you understood the the foundation upon which I stood that that created and I feel forged from my mom to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross to where where I am now uh, in 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 my life uh that feels even more critically essential and foundational to who it is that I feel uh, that I was guided by the universe, by God, by the Lord, by whatever language you want to use that you believe in, uh, because I have felt guided every step of the way. I think that 
my experience, in fact, has been preceding my belief, we are all guided. If we have the ears to listen, the guidance comes through every day. And if only we're willing to suspend our disbelief and give ourselves permission to allow change that we're here to to, to share with people so that they can see into the periphery opportunities that heretofore they could not see. Maybe they were the living dead. Maybe their trauma, their loss, their pain, their suffering, their early life wounding was so deep that they just didn't have the ability and they succumbed to uh, more abuse self-wounding, self-hurting, self-loathing because of the shame that came from the earliest trauma, which is, of course, the foundation of all illness uh, that begins in the third trimester. We know this. Psychology has long ago established that it is, in fact, in the third trimester that the trauma that is going on in that outer world absolutely affects that unborn baby. And then that baby comes into the world and slam, we are here. We have arrived. We are no longer in the pool. We are out in the world. And now you got to, you know, there's something in the Marines that they say uh, that uh, one of my Marine brothers, I'm not a Marine, but if I if I ever moved in the direction uh, of of having been military, I can't imagine uh, being prouder than having been, of course, any member of our military. But I feel so aligned with so many of my brothers that happen to have been Marines. And he said to me, "It sucked being a Marine. It was the greatest gift, and that we were taught." that you need to love the suck and you need to, to just dive into that and love it and dedicate yourself to it. And I guess that's the way that I feel. We need to dive into and dedicate ourselves into whatever the challenge is and not succumb and learn self-talk so that we can pick up the reins and not allow ourselves to go into what some call evil devil, uh, I call negative ego, ego critic judge, the negative ego, the critic, the judge that just wants to, you know, choke the life out of us and pull us into that downward spiral down the rabbit hole. And I work with the people that are farthest down the rabbit hole and I help to bring that light and lift them out of it. And that is what you can do with uh, with a provider, with an ISIS provider, with a trauma therapist specialist. There is hope. There is more than hope, but it begins with hope. It is a palpable change, and we are not alone. We are never alone. There are people that we can turn to that can help us to find the light to climb back to the mission that we are here to live. The greatest gift that we could ever have is our life. We must not squelch out that light. The greatest gift that human beings have been given, we need to embrace that life. And if 
as my Marine brother says, embrace that suck until we rise and transcend above it into the joy. Because whatever the challenges and hardships are, they are not insurmountable. Life is a glorious, beautiful thing that is so worth living. If only we give ourselves permission to find someone to partner with who is in the light that will be able to help and teach and motivate us to become entrenched in it until the light overcomes the dark. And I do believe that the light of one Mother Teresa can easily squelch out the light of a thousand Hitlers if we choose to embrace that notion and find people that we can work with so that we're not alone. So I know I've kind of dived into some of these kind of philosophical aspects to who, who I am and what my mission and what my uh, some of my messaging is, but I can't help it. You know, it's part of uh, Barry Bruder. And uh, sometimes that's part of my wind up toy where I go, you know, but I just love life so much. And, you know, I I love people so much. And whether it's a a child uh, on the spectrum that's never spoken, uh, that 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 says mama after one session of ISIS, Uh, or a child with test anxiety, uh, or a teen that's being bullied, or a mother that's being uh, beat up uh, 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 by her husband, who is an alcoholic, uh, or a Marine, or uh, a person who is just overwhelmed by their life. There is definitely hope. And ISIS is not the be all and all by any means. Let me be clear. ISIS is one spoke on the wheel. That's all it is. There are many roads that lead home. And you have brought many incredible human beings on to your program uh, uh, behind the shield. Uh, and you offer a myriad of opportunities for people to heal. ISIS is but one, but it is one heck of a spoke on the wheel, I will say. And many people have found it to be rather miraculous in its ability to do so. Beautiful. Well, I want to just go back a little bit um, and then pull some things out before we get to that part of, you know, of what you're doing now. First thing, when you were having this vivid dream of these two children being pulled apart, I don't know if anyone else listening had the same thing. You were talking about the AIDS crisis, but it mirrored 2020. And the mania that was, we can't have two human beings, especially children, next to each other. You know, people are wrapping themselves in plastic and fire stations are divided so that no one can eat together. And it was, was, you know, just, just... interesting to see the parallel of you know 40 short years prior with the the mania that surrounded aids when i was a little boy at the time so that was just a kind of observation as we move forward you mentioned about your brother being the chief of boynton beach 
I want to pull some of the commonalities that you've seen in first responders, but the big, big elephant in the room, there's two of them really, childhood trauma, which we'll get to, but also sleep deprivation. Boynton is one of the very few departments I've ever heard of that have gone from a 56-hour work week to a 42-hour work week, which I think is what the industry should do, the profession should do nationwide. Have you had any discussions with your brother about that element of his department? Uh, yes, especially especially of late. Uh, and, I, and I know that this is something that, uh, that he is... Uh, really uh keen on because that that sleep deprivation is a killer uh it it it's just it it's a very very challenging thing for firefighters to have to be on it and uh at times when there are multiple calls over and over again and to come back and to have to go right back out and to keep doing that on top of the things that firefighters see that is really almost until unless you have an individual in your family who's a firefighter or an EMT of course you think people in war they see all these things out there in war a lot of people don't realize that firefighters over a period of 20, 30, 40 years are seeing all of these traumatic events thousands and thousands of times while they're being sleep deprived, never having the ability to be able to go through and even process the trauma that they have absorbed being with these people who literally were decapitated or torn in half. And that is huge. And I know that Hugh, uh, my brother, uh, is so dedicated to helping, as he has been with Mended Minds, uh, his uh, and Jackie Bruder, his wife. Uh, he and Jackie worked with uh, Miami-Dade until they both retired. Hugh uh, being a battalion chief, Jackie being a captain uh, with Miami-Dade, and then Jackie uh, went through uh, and actually retired a few years uh, after Hugh. And then Hugh was like, man, I got to go back to work. I, I have to be in service. I have to do this. Uh, and now Jackie, uh, who, uh, bless her heart, Jackie is, you know, such a powerful woman. Uh, and Jackie is uh, at the moment, after having gone through uh, with cystic kidneys uh, and having a kidney transplant, now she ha has found the same with her liver, and she's looking for a donor for her or a kidney transplant. So I'm putting a little plug in on on that for uh, for my sister in law Jackie. And uh, but Hugh is absolutely thrilled about the fact that this is going to be giving incredible support uh, to uh, the Boynton Beach. Uh, fire department and these uh, very courageous firefighters who are going to be able to have a little bit more sleep, thank God. Absolutely. I think it's it's imperative because when you understand that that's when the brain heals, when we sleep, and they've gone from a 2448 to a 2472, same as Boca Raton, that to me is it. You've, you've put 24 hours of recovery between these all-night shifts. I mean, you know, there's such a misnomer still in the public's eye that we sit around and play cards and smoke cigars and pet the Dalmatian, and that's 100 years ago. You know, if you stand in any main artery road of a city, you hear nothing but sirens. That's, that's the modern-day first responder professions. 
The other thing that was really revealed to me through one of my guests, Jake Clark, was the prevalence of childhood trauma in uniform. And so you get these people that are trying, they're doing, they're, they're doing it coming from a good place, but they're like, oh, PTSD, it's what you saw. It was that call. It was that fire. And missing the entire part of what happened to you from third trimester, as you said, through to the day you pinned the badge on your chest. So as you started working with my community, talk to me about that element of some of the men and women that you work with. Oh, my gosh. I mean, there's no question in my mind that just as Hugh, Hugh was a little, he was a little baby at the time. He was a little boy seeing my mother, our mother, curled up in a ball crying. He grew up traumatized by seeing his mother crying and crying. And I tried to shield him from the trauma that he, I would hug him. I would hold him. I would literally tell him, Hugh, it's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. I remember being in the bunk bed. I, I will never forget this. I was in the upper bunk. He was in the lower bunk. And I would tell him stories about house caverns, these caves in New York State that we would go to. And I would always tell him these stories to help him fall asleep because he had such a hard time falling asleep because of how traumatized uh, he was and how scared that made him. And he would say, Barry, tell me the story about the caves. And I would tell him this. And then I remember years later, he became this I have to go into the military. And, you know, I remember he was 16, you know, ordering mail order M16 rifles. I was like, what the heck? Uh, you know, and he was just like all military. He wound up going into the Air Force. He wanted to fly, but he had astigmatism, so he couldn't fly. But I've had many conversations with Hugh uh, about how many lieutenants have taken their lives. And calling me in tears and Jackie over all of these uh, incredible firefighters uh, who took their lives and hearing stories about their early life wounding and how many I know for a fact, having interviewed so many firefighters, military first responders and learning so many of these individuals were in fact called to go and become themselves work to do work in military and as firefighters and EMTs and as nurses, trauma nurses, uh, doctors, because they themselves lived through a lot of these early life traumas. And doing work with people in these clear path uh, experiential workshops and looking at all of the summary uh, intake that I did with all people who would attend. And the one commonality in almost every single person who attended for a decade, thousands of attendees to all these trauma, loss, experiential trainings. The one commonality was that they almost all came from war, cult abuse, 
or sexual abuse or the loss of a loved one. And in almost every case, love was withheld. And in all of the instances where love was absent, these people grew up traumatized, wanting to give to others what was not given to them. And yet, never having had the opportunity to go do their own healing work and heal their own trauma from their own absentee love, the, the love that was missing from them or the war, cult abuse, sexual abuse that they encountered in their childhood and carried forward in their life, which was very, very difficult for all these people. And there's no question in my mind that for all of those military uh, experienced and first responder individuals that are listening now, we may think that we've done our work, but it's not always a talky thing. It's not about sitting in the chair, talk, talky, talky. It's about more. Why? Because trauma resides on a cellular level in the body. And until we get it out of the body as an experiential release, which is called ab reaction, A-B, ab reaction, until we physically get it out, and not just all through a bombastic emotional release, but through tools like ISIS that we'll talk about later, it's still in the body. It's still in there. That little boy, little girl that took that trauma in, they still go through life with that trauma. They still live with that trauma. That we have a little girl and a little boy traumatized inside of us until we find it and until we can lift it up and embrace that child and give that child the love and allow that wounded child to release those traumas through what Elizabeth Kubler-Ross taught us and what ISIS gives us. And until trauma Doctors like Amy Apigian, A-P-I-G-I-A-N, look her up, folks. Amy Apigian, one of the most brilliant trauma specialists in the world. The work that she is doing in the field of trauma, helping people, helping doctors and therapists is monumental. In a way, what I observed with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross that I now see in Amy, A-I-M-I-E, Amy, uh, monumental. Amy Apigian and her trauma work. And of course, there are many people that have carried that baton forward in, 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 in the way that I, in my small way, carried for, forward. Uh, and I think that that's very, very important because to your point, James, we have got to deal with that early life wounding. And until we do, I'm sorry, all the pills in the world, they're tamping it down. All the talk in the world, it's going around the carousel. 
It's skirting around the issue. We need to do more than talk. We need to get to it. And that's where EMDR, EFT, emotional freedom technique, and some of the wonderful work that trauma therapists, uh, LPCs, LCSWs, you know, I think LMFTs, you know, all these wonderful people, PhD psychologists, uh, uh, they have these tools that are helping finally to begin working to help people to actually heal the trauma, bring it forward, release it so that we can move forward and not be connected to the tether from hell bringing us back into those traumas and begin actually having the ground under our feet and hope for the future. Well, you just said the word I was going to segue with, which is hope. I think this is the problem with the mental health conversation in the first responders at the moment is let's get rid of the stigma. Yes. Let's. Oh, I, you can learn to live with your PTSD. Now, in some cases, in absolute acute cases, maybe that's the best. There's obviously a sliding scale, but... What I believe is most people, when they are finally able to address the thing beneath the thing and really get to the nucleus of their their suffering and process it, that then becomes a superpower. That becomes resilience because you already, you know, wearing a uniform, you've already got this this path, but your foundation was cracked. You fix your foundation. Now, not only are you going to be able to to function at an even higher level, I would argue, than, than you did prior because you were doing it despite your trauma. But now, which is what's such a beautiful thing, these men and women come out the other end. Now you become a beacon of hope as well for other people. And the number of people I know that have started talking about their journey and the people around them that they thought were doing just fine all start coming out the woodwork going, how did you do that? I'm going through this too. So... That story, you know, using the word hope, the hope of post-traumatic growth, I think is a conversation we need to shift to. I agree completely. And until people who are telling themselves a story of hopelessness feel hope. Hope is not a thought. Hope is a feeling. When an individual palpably feels in their body safe that is a physical feeling we don't think safe we feel safe when a person feels hope when they palpably in their body feel a lifting of the weight that has held them down like a ton of bricks that they're under and they can't get out of it brings a whole new reality to this human being. And that's where ISIS comes in. Because, and I'll give you a prime example, Olivera Flacco. I can tell you her name because she's all over talking about how 40 years ago, Olivera was in Serbia with her two little babies. And she had 40 plus years of suicidality, suicidal thoughts, 40 plus years. She called me about a year ago. She said, Bear, do you have a provider, Sean Burns, down in Oceanside? I do. And she said, I saw her 
I said, how did that go for you? She said, I need you to know something. I prayed to God that, that God would just take me and my kiddos to another dimension. I know it's a horrible thing to admit, but I just prayed every day, take us, get it over with, let one of those bombs kill us, take us away. And I said, well, what happened? She said, I did three sessions of ISIS with Sean Burns. I no longer have any suicidal thoughts. All I can tell you is that by the third session, I became aware that I felt no more fear in my body and I actually felt hopeful. And I haven't felt any suicidal feelings or had any suicidal thoughts since that day. And I invited Oliveira to come into my office and I gave her a little tune-up. This was a year ago. And she has said, I have not had any suicidal thoughts since that day. And I asked her, I said, do you, do you sense that it was the feeling in your body that really made that change for you? She said, there's no question. She said, I've been to dozens of therapists. I've tried all kinds of medication. Nothing touched it. Somehow it lifted a veil. And I became aware that in my body, physiologically, in, a, in, in almost a palpable way, I felt a, a, a state of calm that I haven't felt in more than 40 years. And it's never gone away. And to this day, she says that it's never gone away. I know, not just from one, but I've done about 200,000 IS sessions personally with people over more than th more than 13 years. And I got to tell you, there's no question in my mind. When I have my favorite saying, mamas don't lie. When you got a mama telling you her kid on the spectrum never said a word age five and the next day calls me up crying and i say i i can't understand what you're saying what's up romeo said mama he's never said a word you know she didn't make that up mamas don't lie when you got a 30-year retired master guns master gunnery sergeant who had migraine every day for five years from when he got blown up by an IED in his Humvee. Wakes up 2.14 a.m. every day, goes to the medicine cabinet, grabs the Imitrex, takes the medication to stop that migraine, drinking 36 or more beer beers a day to squelch out the pain, calls me after his first session. To this day, I hear it. I know it. I know he didn't lie. 
but I find it hard to believe. He sounded like Batman. Bruder, sir, what did you do to me? I said, okay, uh, you're scaring me. What <laughs> happened? What happened? I need to tell you. I have no cravings. I woke up at 214. I went to the medicine cabinet and I realized I have no migraine. I just did the dishes with my wife. And I don't know what the heck you did to me, but I want more. <laughs> that guy, one session. That's what he reported to me. If I had a dime for every person that has been treated with IAS's technologies globally that has seen these kinds of shifts, I am not saying that it should be in lieu of therapy, but in conjunction. I am not saying that people have to stop taking their meds. Do not stop taking your meds. Do not stop doing what your doctor is telling you to do, for goodness sake. But we find that people become sensitized and do not need as much medication after they start doing ISS. And I say, go to your doc. Talk to your doc. Tell your doctor what you're feeling. And they get to titrate down, in many cases, and off their meds. So... Absolutely. We feel it palpably in the body and in all the reports that have come forward, thousands and thousands and thousands of reports across the gamut, trauma, loss, war, cult abuse, sexual abuse. We have found ISIS to be helpful for so many different things, but I'll, I'll, I'll throw the ball back to you to see where you'd like to go next. I think the most powerful testimony is your own. So let's go into your journey finding this technology and then we'll move forward to, you know, explaining what it is and how it works. I'm really glad that you asked that. So Hyla Cass, Hyla, H-Y-L-A, Hyla Cass, she is an author. She's a functional medical doctor. Uh, it was 2009, and I said, Hyla, you know, I lost my mom, going through challenges with my wife. What do you think I should do? Well, uh, you know, I, I think that you should definitely go and have this LENS, neurofeedback. LENS? Yeah, it's an acronym, Low Energy Neurofeedback System. Hyla, yeah, I'm not sticking electrodes on my head. Shut up and stick electrodes on your head or take this Lexapro. Uh, all right, I'll go stick electrodes on my head. And this uh, little bald Jewish doctor in uh, Beverly Hills stick these electrodes on my head. And uh, I was pretty skeptical. I am very skeptical. And uh, finished the session. And uh, he said, so, uh, so uh, uh, what are you noticing? Uh, what do you think? And I said, yeah, well, you know, I, I think this is a placebo, and I think you're full of crap. He said, what? I said, I'm sorry. I, I you know, I'm I'm a very straightforward guy. You know, I, I don't believe things that I don't experience. And uh, I don't know. This, this probably has got to be a placebo, right? Because, you know, I don't know. You know, I mean, I'm feeling something, but I don't know. 
So I, I thought, well, you know, it can't hurt and I don't want Lexapro. So I'll just go, I'll keep going to this cat two times a week for a while. So at three months, I remember walking into this guy's office and, uh, and we finished the session and he looks at me and he goes, uh, so bear, you know, we haven't checked in in a while. What do you think? And I said, well, well, it's real. What? I mean, maybe, maybe it's real. I don't know. It could be real. At six months, he said, so what do you think now? I said, David, I need to get trained in this. He said, you do, huh? I had probably by that point sent 50 people to him and every one of them got better. It's crazy from everything you can imagine. Everybody I knew I sent to this cat. He and his wife sent me to go train with Len Oaks, the founder of Lens, and I became a lens provider, low energy neurofeedback system. And almost immediately, I turned to my wife and I said, Laura, what, what if there is something that could help people get to the leading, leading edge of enduring sustainability, but in a fraction of the number of sessions? And she went, oh, my gosh, not another mission. And I said, babe, you know me. I, I, I got to do this. I can't not do this. Look what this has done for me. I have no more anxiety. I feel so resistant and resilient. To your point, I never felt resilient. I felt so resilient. Stuff that used to bring me down constantly. I was like Mr. Velcro. If it could stick to me, it stuck to me. I ruminated. I couldn't get over it for days. And all of a sudden, I'm like Mr. Teflon. Stuff's rolling off. I go, not you know, not my monkey, not my, not, you know, whatever, you know, like whatever, like, it's not my, not my, you know, I don't have a dog in the fight. Right. And I was like, wait a second, this is crazy. This is so freaking helpful. And, uh, and she said, well, you're going to do it anyway. So you may as well just go do it. And that was the next big turning point because I said, all right, God, come on now. If you want this thing, I need your help because I'm not an electrical engineer, software engineer. And I just kind of prayed on it and thought, there's got to be a way. Well, I just started telling people that I was doing lens because I was a lens provider. And people started telling people, telling people that I was having all these incredible outcomes. And uh, it led me to Dr. Ming Zhang Huang. Someone told Dr. Huang, H-U-A-N-G, Ming Shang Huang uh, uh, at the University of California, San Diego. And Dr. Huang said, well, this is very interesting. I think that this would be a really interesting study and that we should, we should study the impact for people that have mild to moderate traumatic brain injury, given what happened to this Marine that you've been treating, who no longer has migraine. Think of the impact to headache and migraine. And I said, well, how will you do that? And he said, well, we'll look at the MEG magnetic encephalography and an MRI overlay, and we'll see what the changes are in the brain in neuroimages. And I said, well, that sounds good, but I don't have any money. And he said, I think this is such a great idea. I'll get the university to pay for it. 
everybody that helped on the study volunteered. And in September of 2017, would you believe the journal uh, that was called Brain Injury Journal, it's still called Brain Injury Journal, published this research study that Dr. Ming-Shang Huang was the PI, the principal investigator on, proving neuroimaging changes in the brain from ISS MCN, microcurrent neurofeedback, and how fascinating that the River Mead assessment, which is this questionnaire that heretofore was pretty much the main tool that was used when guys would come back from war, having suffered exposure to concussion and multiple bomb blasts, they would ask them the questions on the River Mead assessment. And wouldn't you know it, all of the questions that they were asked, all these participants in the study, completely aligned what they said that they experienced with healing in the brain that showed up in the, er the neuroimages, proving healing changes in the brain with mild to moderate traumatic brain injury. That was a huge step proving beyond the shadow of a doubt with IRB approval, Institutional Review Board, which is like the Ethics Committee of the University of California, San Diego, and the Veterans Administration, which both, both gave that approval. And that launched ISS. That was in September of 17. I was pretty hush about it up until that point. I didn't really go out and, you know, kind of shout it to the world. But then I really put it out there and let a lot of folks know about it because it felt like it was really time. And um, and then the, the next major study uh, that would come out uh, actually published just a few weeks ago. Uh, and it was a mental health study with the Journal of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. It is published now, and it is in uh, it's it, it is in open space, which means uh, it is anywhere anybody can find it if they look up the journal for the American Association of Nurse Practitioners and look up ISIS I A S I S ISIS M C N. Uh, and anxiety, depression, PTSD, those were the three things studied. And this study demonstrated one to two standard deviations above the mean, which is a very significant outcome of diminished anxiety, depression, and all symptoms of PTSD in a P of 95, which means if a thousand times ISIS was tested, 950 times out of a thousand, it would have that outcome. It had to be that monumental for the Journal of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners to find such a profound outcome, at least demonstrating the need for further study but demonstrating for the mental health arena, 
as 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 exciting as it was for uh, the uh, the doctors who deal with concussion uh, and uh, and headache and migraine and ultimately CTE for all the people that uh, may have suffered uh, playing football uh, from being, you know, socked and, you know, sacked and knocked out and, you know, uh, the terrible things that have happened to all of our football players from the time that they're kids uh, uh, in school all the way through. So these two studies very much now in the mental health arena on one hand and the physio- physiological on the other very much lay the groundwork for the science of ISS. And I've always said, if you don't have science, you're just a nice person with a nice idea. But now we have the science to back it up and support it. So it sounds incredibly encouraging for people listening, kind of paint the picture of what a treatment session would look like. Sure. Great question. So Client comes in, patient comes in, provider does an intake. They've already done uh, an online intake. They ask a few more questions in their verbal intake. They cleanse a few sites on the forehead, sometimes one or two uh, up uh, in the part on the midline on their scalp. But for the most part, forehead right in front of the ears, which we call preauricular. Uh, possibly a couple sites behind the ears and a couple on the back of the neck. Maybe three pairs, four pairs, five pairs of electrodes. After they cleanse it with a little a little cleanser, they dry it off and they add a little conductive paste and they put on the electrodes that sticks into the paste. And literally in a matter of anywhere from five to 15 minutes, the session is conducted, the IASIS session. People don't feel anything because it's it's 150 millivolts. So let me put that into perspective with a couple measurements. It's about a millionth of a cell phone. Cell phones have been banned in France and China. This last week in China, prior, the, the iPhone was banned in France for being too many watts. Now it's even more watts, the new 15 whatever coming out, uh, that is microwave. It's like turning on a microwave oven, basically. So when I see girls putting it in their bra and in their back pocket, it is so dangerous. Please tell your kiddos, and don't you as well, put that sucker in your pocket. It is frying people, literally. Uh, And so... uh, the, uh, the the measurement is about a hundredth of a AA battery for a hundredth of a second. We're talking about, it is so small, the amount of energy, that it takes a half a million dollar piece of equipment to even register energy that small. But it's there. They sit down, the electrodes go on, they start the session. The session itself in energy is about as I said, about uh, five or six up to about 15 minutes, sometimes a couple minutes longer. But an initial session for me is about 45 because I do an initial intake. I ask questions, create safety, safe container, do the session, cleanse, prep. They uh, cleanse the prep off. 
I, I do uh, a little debriefing, checking in, how you doing, what are you noticing? So first session's about 45 minutes, follow-ups are about a half an hour. That's typical. How many sessions? Well, you know, if a person has a traumatic brain injury, they may need 10 to 20 sessions. Uh, uh, anything that has happened that's, you know, short-lived, they've only had it for a couple of days, uh, you know, 10 to 20 sessions. If somebody has something that they've lived with 10, 20, 30, 40 years, okay, it may take more sessions. How many? Everybody's brain and nervous system is different. We have to see. We have to get in there and see. We observe. We do a 24-hour observation report, which helps us to track and decide how we're doing, what we're doing going forward. It's not some arbitrary decision. It's based in science and observation, both the observation that we make and knowing the technology and our guidelines of care and looking at the trajectory of what it is that we're being told in the 24-hour observation report from the patient and client. And that's how we judge what we do. So they don't feel anything. Uh, they say, oh, I don't know, electrodes. And I go, ever go like this with your mobile phone? Uh-huh. Okay, it's a millionth of that. You're not going to even feel that. There is no feeling to feel. It's too small. There is no side effect. There are only well effects. Can, if a person is very vulnerable in their autonomic nervous system, you use the word resilient. When the nervous system is more resilient and resistant, absolutely they can handle a little bit more time of an IS session and a higher protocol. It is the protocol of which there are five preset IASIS protocols that we choose. We start with what we call genesis and we go from there. But less is more. The word hormesis is the foundation of all of our training. And hormesis means the smallest possible dosage to achieve the greatest optimal outcome. More is not good or better. Less is more. Do we do a little more for some people? Of course but we do it very prudently and based on observation of that 24 hour observation report. And again, our guidelines of care. Uh, can it cause a little bit of reactivity? For the person that has a very vulnerable autonomic nervous system, uh, a great deal, headache, migraine, trauma, uh, autoimmune disease, Lyme disease, uh, a person, a child with POTS, PANS, PANDAS, epilepsy, uh, an individual that, that again, has Lyme disease, older, uh, uh, someone who, uh, uh, you know, suffered multiple concussions playing high school football. Yes, we have to use greater care and go slower and be even more cautious with those folks because it can sometimes cause a little reactivity. However, a subset of every reaction, in fact, is a response because we've nudged them off the fence. Now they're moving toward what? Homeostasis. They're coming back to balance. Their nervous system is becoming more resistant and resilient. And as they feel more hope, physiologically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, they feel more grounded and they feel that they can go on in their life. And that's a very huge blessing uh, and a joy for ISS providers 
to observe and to hear as feedback. Amazing. So people listening, obviously, are all over the this country and even internationally. What is the easiest way of finding a location that has a provider that can offer this service? Absolutely. So if you go to isstech.com, uh, there's two websites, both lead to the same place, spelled I-A-S as in Sam, I-S as in Sam, tech, like tech support, T-E-C-H.com, isstech.com, and microcurrent neurofeedback, no space, no period, no nothing, microcurrent neurofeedback.com. So isstech.com or microcurrentneurofeedback.com. And then when you get on, you'll see find a provider. The three little lines that you touch on to you know bring down the menu, click on find a provider. It will take you to a map. Type in the zip code or the city name or the country name, and it will take you to the individual or individuals that are working with ISIS. And you'll see a little flag in all those areas uh, on the, you know, in the country. Uh, and we're expanding outward all the time. Uh, we have folks that uh, are currently in Europe, Middle East, Asia, Australia, Canada, Mexico, obviously all throughout the United States, Panama, uh, you know, we're, we're all over the place uh, and, and growing constantly uh, by, you know, leaps and bounds, which uh, is really exciting. And then, you know, we, we tend not to want people to call the office because, you know, we don't want to show favoritism, uh, but everybody that's on there has been trained by me. I've trained more than 1,600, and we've got a lot of folks that are ICPs, ISS certified providers, uh, or they're provisional ISS certified provisional provider working under them in their medical or mental health uh, clinic. Uh, and uh, and you can call them. And if you try to find someone and they don't get back to you right away, then call the office and we'll try to find uh, you a uh, you know a little bit of support so that you're not blown in the breeze. And you can always write to me, uh, uh, Barry Bruder at issstech.com, Barry Bruder, B-A-R-R-Y, Bruder, B-R-U-D-E-R at issstech.com. Ask me any questions you have about the technology. I'm more than happy. And give me your phone number. I'll call you. I call folks all day long, seven days of the week uh, to to help people who want this for their kiddos or their loved ones, for mental health, for memory issues, whatever it is, post-stroke, incredibly helpful for post-stroke. I mean, there's so many things that it's helpful for. It, it borders on sounding a little crazy, but for the fact that I've observed it, I couldn't believe it myself. Amazing. Well, that's where people can find the actual, you know, the, the site for the therapy itself. What about you? If people want to reach out to you, are there any places on social media that you would love to connect with them? Absolutely. So if you, uh, if you want to uh, uh, connect directly, uh, directly to me, uh, what, what I would suggest is 
Uh, if you type in my name, Barry Bruder, uh, and uh, and and the word uh, ISS uh, and the word Murrieta, because my office is in Murrieta, you can always connect with me uh, directly. And Murrieta is M-U-R-R-I-E-T-A, uh, and uh, uh, I'm more than happy uh, to uh, to connect uh, with anybody uh, who is interested. Uh, and uh, and if you'd like. I'm more than happy to even give my uh, phone number. It's always on mute. You never have to worry about waking me. And people say, why are you giving out your mobile number? Because I have doctors call me from all over the world, and I'm honored to speak with them, and I'm honored to speak with you. Believe it or not, even though I do that, very rarely do, do people actually reach out. But on occasion, I'll have a mom call me and say, can you help me about my son, my daughter? And that's why I actually like to do that. And I'll tell you the number. It's 310-562-5588. And I welcome you to call with your questions. Uh, but definitely go to the website first so that you can become educated. What is it? How does it work? And if you're interested, I'm more than happy, James, to actually speak to what what is the mecha mechanism of action? How does ISIS actually mediate its effects? What do we know about what it's actually doing and why it is so helpful and successful? Uh, and if that's of interest to some of the people that are listening, uh, I'm more than happy to uh, answer that question. Yeah, let's do it now. Yeah, absolutely. So essentially, ISIS is doing two things. On one hand, this little tiny micro pulse is going to the area where we manufacture the majority of neurotransmitters, not just in the head, but in the heart and the gut. It is sending those little teeny tiny micro pulses to the gut, heart, and head, and it is increasing the production of parasympathetic neurochemicals. We know that it does that because heart rate variability proves a parasympathetic shift. We know that the neurochemicals of the parasympathetic are neurochemicals like GABA, serotonin, endorphins, and dopamine. So there's no question in any of the doctor's minds that those neurochemicals must be being elevated uh, in that moment simultaneously, it's calming down fight or flight. We don't want the sympathetic nervous system to go away. We just want to be able to get out of what is called by Dr. Stephen Porges, who wrote polyvagal theory, which I highly recommend if you are at all involved with neurochemistry or anything revolving and surrounding the brain and brain issues. Polyvagal theory, Dr. Stephen Porges, P-O-R-G-E-S, he calls it dorsal vagal freeze. And what we are actually doing is wanting to kind of get that sir, the, the, the sympathetic nervous system out of being stuck in that sympathetic freeze, calming down that fight or flight, lowering what we know to be the chemicals of the sympathetic nervous system that are dominant, homocysteine and cortisol, among others. So basically, as it's calming down fight or flight, elevating what we call sympathetic nervous system tone. We don't want too much tone. We don't want too little sympathetic. 
we have neuroregulation. We don't tell it how to do that. The brain has a genius all its own. It knows how to do that. Second thing that ISIS does, other than neuroregulation, is that Dr. Ming-Chong Huang, he learned and he shared with me that it is firing up cholinergic pathways, sending cholinesterase into the brain, bypassing the blood-brain barrier, sending this cholinesterase into the brain. So from the neck the, or the, the say the base of the skull, the brain south, we have the lymphatic system. But from the skull up in the brain, we have with the G, the glymphatic system. And the, 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 the function of the glymphatic system is detoxing the brain. That's its job. The cholinesterase that goes into the brain fired up from somehow the function of iasis is sending the cholinesterase in the brain that is activating the microglia, the cells of the glymphatic system, which then help to bind to the excess tau, excess alpha beta amyloid plaque, helping to perform what we have learned is happening. It is helping to detox by performing metabolic clearance helping to get some of that metabolic waste out of the brain. These are the things that we know is happening from iasis simultaneously. And no surprise that we're seeing these, these neuroimaging changes in the brain of the reduction of abnormal delta waves that are associated, abnormally slow delta waves are associated with insomnia and brain injury. And we see the reduction of those abnormal delta waves after a person has iasis. No surprise. So without getting too incredibly deep, at least it gives some who want a little bit of knowledge and information, who who have uh, some platform of um, awareness and knowledge of uh, the brain and that neurochemistry <clears throat> to at least have what has been postulated and discussed and brought forward by people like Dr. Ming-Chang Wong. Uh, uh, and, and I think that it's, you know, very exciting uh, to, uh, uh, to be able to share that. And of course, Dietrich Klinghart, who is the leader globally uh, in uh, functional medicine related to, as an MD, the brain. He believes that this is exactly what's happening from ISIS. He's told me that many times over. Uh, so really excited to share that about some of the science and uh, mechanism of action that we believe is happening. Well, the analogy that you used, the spoke in the wheel, something that I've talked about, you know, the toolbox, this is what gives people hope. You know, everyone, as you said, has their own combination. For me, I know that the German Shepherd on the other side of my office door here is a big part of my healing. But then is Newcom, a technology I just found recently, and meditation. Um, and I would love to actually try this as well. But to have yet another tool in the toolbox, especially on the TBI element, a lot of veterans and members of SWAT teams and martial artists and football players and wrestlers. I mean, you name it. There's there's so many people out there that, you know, even soccer players, all the headers that, that may have lesser TBIs that they're not aware of. So I think it's incredibly encouraging that you've added yet another tool to that toolbox. So I want to thank you so, so much for being so generous with your time today. Well, you're so welcome. But, you know, just say one last piece. Please. 
you you just touched on it. This is not just for people who have been knocked upside the head or survived trauma and loss. I work with many professional athletes who have come to me because they want to optimize brain function. I have tennis players that say, I don't know how it's possible. It slows the ball down. I am able to see the ball slower. Uh, I have professional basketball players, football players, members of SWAT teams, fighter pilots, all these people, they don't have, they're not coming to me with problems. They want to optimize brain function and optimizing uh, outcomes uh, for people uh, and um, uh, having uh, having that, that sort of support. Uh, for what they're doing in their lives to be able to be that much more focused because it seems to really quiet the mind uh, and help people to be able to focus on their job, whatever it is, whether it is a sport or, uh, you know, running a, you know, running a company, they all seem to be uh, peak performance, bottom line. We're improving peak performance for all those folks uh, as well as helping everybody else. So, uh, James, I-, I thank you for the privilege of being here and uh, sharing with you and uh, and your audience. And uh, thank you for the privilege and uh, honor to be here and uh, looking forward to answering questions that anybody may have.